Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Lindsay Bell. Why don't you start off, John? I mean, you do, you, your new show is going to be called The Real Equity, right? The Real Equity? The Real Dividend? Do I do that every day? Do I do I that like weekly? It. I, I, it depends. I mean, it, do you know the it's... amount of people that I've heard over the last couple of days saying, I want to buy Europe and I want to buy Europe for income. I want to buy Europe for income for the dividend. What do you make of that argument, Lindsay? Well, I think it just talks, it goes to show you how nervous people are in this environment. Um, and the valuation in Europe has come down so significantly, too. You can actually see some good value there. Um, and I think that you're seeing, in general, over the last several months, investors flock to defensive sectors. Like real estate has been in the U.S. outperforming um, most other sectors. Uh, consumer staples has another one that's been doing quite well. Um, and we're looking for healthcare to pick up some slack, too. So this has been the story for me of the last couple of months. The headline numbers scream record highs, all-time highs, and maybe tell a story of exuberance. Beneath the surface, it's a really defensive rally, isn't it? Utilities, consumer staples. What's the story there? Talk to us about it. No, you're absolutely right. While the market overall is, you know, hitting new all-time highs, the S&P 500 up almost 20% on a year-to-date basis, it, and it's trading at a rich valuation right now, nearly 18 times on a forward PE basis. So not all is cheap, but it just doesn't feel exuberant okay. underneath the surface. The tension to your defensive call is people are putting a premium on revenue growth in selected sectors as well. Is your defensive call because that belief in the revenue growth is going to disappear or diminish? Partially, you are revenue growth is expected expected to slow precipitously but in, in the second quarter. But in some sectors, I'm buying nine percent or ten percent or fifteen percent revenue growth, and I'm paying a huge premium for that privilege, right? Right, exactly. So financials are, is one area. Healthcare is another area. Healthcare has always been done extremely well from a revenue and earnings perspective every single quarter. They don't always get the credit for it. Um, but also, you know, you see investors flocking, to your point, to the tech sector because well, because they do want that growth. And that's where you're getting top line growth. Bottom line growth is expected to decline. Why will that trend actually. change? What, what will change the desire on a microeconomic basis, the demand function? for that tech revenue growth? You know, I think it's going to be difficult for it to change because tech is one sector where investors actually feel very comfortable. Despite the defensive sectors doing well, tech is still the best performing sector on a year-to-date Thank basis. you. That's important yes. to state. Is CFRA believe that will continue? Yes, we do. Uh, we are overweight the technology sector. We're also overweight the communication services sector, which is an interesting play between that growth, techie growth, and defensive because you've got Google and Facebook and then AT&T and Verizon. Those, those are the four wait, wait. largest companies in that sector. Did you're you know speechless. that? You're speechless, I'm, Tom. Why are you so speechless? You're, you're bundling Verizon together with Google? Uh, not me. That's what the S&P 500 is doing. The recalibration last year where they created the communication services sector out of the telecommunication services yeah, sector. I don't so, understand it. So, <laughs> me neither. But um, What did they do with Anaconda Copper? Save me, John. <laughs> did you see BSF this morning? Yes, I mentioned it twice on air. I dazzled Slashing Ms. its Bell. outlook. Yes. Earnings could be 30% oh, you're below so gloomy. 2018 levels. They're blaming trade. Is trade the scapegoat for this? I, you know, I don't know if it's 
the scapegoat, I think it's reality that trade is actually having an impact. And I think this is going to be the quarter where you start to hear corporate management teams really talk about the numerical impact. Um, and you, they're going to take numbers and guidance down for the second half of the year. The second half of the year, you have a Q4 that's expecting nearly 7% <clears throat> earnings growth. That's going to probably have to come down if trade, there's not you know, a resolution, at least on the tariffs in the near term, because as we discussed earlier, Tom, you're seeing the economic yeah. data in China, especially very much weakened. That's starting to bleed yeah. into Europe. And at some point, it will impact the U.S. here. Lindsay, thank you so much. Please come on, Lindsay. Lindsay thank Bell you. with us with CFRA. A good day to catch up with our Christopher Whalen. He has a number of books out, and the one I would really highlight, folks, is his one volume, Inflated which is a fabulous walkthrough of the financial history of the United States of America. It is a different financial history than Germany. And he joins us now, Chris Whalen on uh, Deutsche Bank as well. Chris, just, you know, two days into the saving plan, just your general thought on the likelihood that Deutsche Bank can execute this plan. Uh, I think low, Tom. Uh, my guess is that what we're watching here is the final uh, death struggle before the bank uh, ends up being acquired or merged. What is the what is a reaction function that is key here? Is it a revenue dynamic? Is it a cost yes. dynamic? Is it a, a, a capital raise dynamic? Uh, capital raise is not possible at this point. The stock is trading below 20% of book value. Uh, all banks at the end of the day live or die based on profitability, not capital. They have to have the profits to deal with problems and keep going, as the U.S. banks illustrated a decade ago. And that's just not been the case in Europe. It's not just Deutsche Bank, Tom. The whole continent has a basic problem with bank profitability, and you can see it in the stock prices. Even Santander, which is a reasonably healthy, broad-based uh, institution, is down 30% this year. So, Chris, let's talk about that. What is it about Europe that is so difficult for a bank to make profit? Well, the role of the state in terms of financing, you have, you know, Germany, for example, you have all different types of state institutions that provide most of the basic finance. Uh, you don't have an asset-backed securities market, as you do in the U.S., which was enormously uh, important to helping us recover from the 2008 crisis. It came back within months. And so you, you lack these basic pieces, and Deutsche has been forced to look externally, not in Germany, for opportunities. And it, it's so strange when we hear the CEO talk about going back to the old model. Well, that's 70 years ago when they banked small and medium-sized enterprises. They have stopped doing that. They gave up their foreign markets. The French didn't do this. If you look at Société Générale, look at BNP, they still have a basic lending business to small and mid-sized enterprises, which gives them deposits. So Deutsche looks a lot like Citi. The only difference is, is that it doesn't have a big consumer finance business as Citi does, which makes a lot of money. And that is a problem. I've often joked, and, and frankly, I was more than half serious. I said, we should just merge Deutsche and Citi because they have capital markets, they have global payments, they have some important back office functions, which I've been very concerned about. 
and it might make sense. But I don't think the Germans are willing to do it, number one. Right. And number two, you can't even talk about it in Europe. The Chris, politics are so poisonous, so you can't even mention the word bank. And we've got about eight things to talk about, Chris Whalen, but there's a lot of people walking out of, of, of the doors down on Wall Street today with cardboard boxes in their hands. Yes. How do you go about getting another job in New York in the milieu we're in right now? I mean, is it you just assume you're going to go to a boutique firm? Well, that's certainly what I did. Um, I have specialized on the, uh, the world of mortgage finance, which is a bit of a ghetto. Most of the public companies there trade well below book value. Uh, you're a ghetto kind of guy, so it works. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's an important sector. And, and this is one of the things about Deutsche Bank that most yeah. people don't know. They're very important in the world of both residential and commercial real estate. So these the people States. have skill sets. You're saying of the 18,000 yes. people, some of them have some genuine skill sets. Yes, those that can differentiate themselves can stay in this business. But it's eat what you kill today, Tom. You know that. The investment yeah. banks aren't handing out big salaries anymore. And I think for most people, um, they're going to have to go find something else to right. do. Right. Do you want to make a 6% coupon? You can do that with Chris Whalen. Chris, let's review from eight years ago your courage to say shut up and buy the banks. But you did it through a high coupon preferred stock. How did that yeah. work out? Uh, it works great. They're boring. I own U.S. Bank. I own Cities Trups which were awesome. In December, they were yielding double digits, and uh, Bank America preferred. And I buy them for income. My beautiful wife has most of my money. She's a private banker, and we're both in the world of investments, so it makes our lives a little simpler in terms of compliance. But I look for income. I look for idiosyncratic financial Where stories. are you looking right now? I mean, if the J.P. Morgan story is over and, you know, X percent looked good earlier, you know, is, is the play been made in a high-yield American banking securities? Uh, for now, yes. I think the banks are going to have some weakness in the near term simply because of interest rates. Net interest income is flat, and it will be going down again this quarter. Um, I think there are credit concerns out there that will cause investors to lighten up on financials after loading up on them two years ago. And then you can go shopping. But to me, what is in prospect is that the Fed may allow the next down cycle to chew up many of these non-banks that are competing with the banks today, and then the banks are going to be a huge buy, Tom. One final. They're going to end well, up with monopoly. I want to go to your book, Financial Stability. Where's the instability now? Is it leveraged loans? It's somewhere that we haven't identified yet. It's but come on, but you're thinking about this 24-7, Chris. You did this at Kroll. You're doing it at Wayland Global Advisors. Yes. Is it, is it leveraged loans? Is, it's in bonds. It's, it's not directly okay. in the banks, but the banks have indirect exposure, and that's what people worry about. Okay, Chris Whalen, thank you so much for the update. Greatly appreciate it. I can't say enough from uh, a decade ago, the prescient nature of his read-through uh, of, of American financial history. Norm Rubini writing a nice forward to his book, uh, Inflated. Can you imagine David Bloom as an ambassador for anybody? HSBC Global Head of Currency Strategy joins us now. Do you want that job, Bloomy? I'm no ambassador. I say it's straight luck, I think, so no. You're like the least diplomatic currency strategist I've ever met. David, talk to me about the dollar. All these calls for the dollar to go weaker, weaker. 
It's not happening. That's your view, isn't it? Yeah, it's not happening. They need a bit of uh, a brush to scrub the egg off their faces, even when the market uh, just a couple of weeks ago was pricing in 50 uh, by the Fed. The dollar was hardly selling off. The dollar's power, man. It's here to stay. It offers high yields. It's a great currency. So many people look at rate differentials. They think that rate differentials reassert themselves. They believe that the Federal Reserve needs to cut rates and that rates must narrow between the United States and Europe and therefore dollar weakness. Why is that the wrong way of looking at it, David? Because at the zero bound of interest rates, the way you cut rates is not symmetrical. So the ECB can only cut 10 and the Fed could cut 25. So let's imagine on the same day they decide to cut and the ECB says things are going wrong in Europe and the Fed goes things are going wrong in the US and they both cut on the same day. The one cuts 25, the other can only cut 10. Were you saying that's positive for euro? No, it's not. They can't cut more than 10. So that's the problem. At the zero bound of interest rates, when you're negative territory, the amount you can cut is limited. And your interest rate differential dial that you use to see where things are while you're flying this plane through financial markets, you look at the dial, it's broken. So forget about interest rate differentials from that perspective. But if you look at one-year money, where one-year money can fall a long way, you're getting offered nearly 2% on one-year money in the U.S., uh, guaranteed by the U.S. taxpayer. It's beautiful. And what's important, folks, is this will be a podcast with Professor Bloom, and what you just heard there was absolutely brilliant about the zero bound. Are we in a liquidity trap? I know it's an economist question, but a foreign exchange is a litmus paper of the system. Does it suggest some kind of liquidity trap where monetary policy can't work? Well, we would argue it's even worse than that in the sense that, um, uh, according to the U.S. administration, now you can't use your currency as a lever and put your problem onto another country. This is now unacceptable practice. So before, when all the levers were tied up, you might do QE and that drives your currency down and that helps you. But now you're at risk if you drive your currency down deliberately against the United States, you're at risk of a backlash. You know, um, the U.S. administration is not prepared to have the dollar as your your uh, your puppet, and this is changing the way we're doing foreign, uh, foreign exchange, and it's changing the world. So that extra lever that you thought you might have by manipulating your currency, this has all gone also out of the toolbox, and that puts us into a, a much narrower paradigm of what you can get away with. David, put a little bit more meat on that phrase, backlash. What does a backlash actually mean? How does that play well, out in backlash. practice? What do they do? Well, we've seen that in terms of threats of tariffs, in terms of trade wars, in terms of, uh, you know, people, countries getting upset with you and actually doing something about it. So when Abe came in in Japan, they did QE and dollar yen went from 80 to 125 and this created some inflation in Japan, but at someone else's cost. You can't do that anymore. The U.S. administration doesn't want you, yeah. another country, to manipulate the dollar at your own gain for someone else's expense. And they're saying, we've had enough of this. And, you know, that is the part of the backlash. And we've right. seen it. We've seen threats of tariffs. So you can't just use the currency as a tool willy-nilly anymore without thinking there may be some repercussions. Set up the range of some of these major pairs against your dollar stability and even dollar strength. What does euro drift to? What does yen drift to? Well, we've got uh, euro drifting down to 110. We've had it the whole year. You know, to yeah. break 110, something new, fundamental, and different has Fair. to happen. Okay. And I can't see it at the moment, Tom. I think, you know, both economies struggling a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on the dovish side, ECB on the dovish side. So, you know, uh, drifting down, okay. Aussie drifting down. You know, these are the 
currencies, uh, the dollar, you know, having a nice little drift, a small little current, you know, which won't carry you away, play nicely in it. If you're yeah. in one of those tubes, you get carried on the lazy river, yeah. you know. Tell us about Sterling. Pharaoh, you know, we're trying to buy season tickets to the Tots. Me and John will share them. And Can I translate one, for David one, that you call, you call Tottenham Hospers the Tots? Yeah, well, you know, you know. I mean, is that the right team? All the jelly Tots. Yeah, I mean, one twenty four forty eight. Am I going to enjoy it on one nineteen? You're going to be eating the beautiful prawn sandwiches as well, coming with your beautiful dollars. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah, look, Sterling's under pressure. People are worried about the no Brexit scenario. There's a lot going in, basically, on Parliament at the moment. We've got a leadership contest. You know, we changed the date of Brexit from basically April Fool's to Halloween, and that tells you something about it. <laughs> um, so... Uh, uh, basically, you know, Sterling is under pressure all the time. Um, the only way that Sterling is going to really show a massive bid is if we get some kind of deal. And that's what we're all hoping for. And that's what we think is very still possible uh, in the HSBC world. Emma Chandler just told there's the prawn sandwich brigade. Yeah. What he just said to me, he was making yeah. fun of me. So they, that, these that, are the posh seats. So the posh when you seats. sit at Tottenham uh, and you sit in the posh seats, you go buy yourself a beautiful prawn sandwich. A prawn while the rest sandwich. of us eat Sir, Sir, Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson of Manchester United, when he used to complain about the atmosphere at Old Trafford, he would say the fans are sitting there eating their prawn sandwiches and aren't making any noise. That's where I sat that when would, I went, that in would the be end you. zone there. <laughs> David Bloom's not a football fan anyway. He likes MMA. I'm afraid to he ask, likes, what's he, MMA? He likes, he likes the mixed martial arts. He likes the, the UFC, that kind of stuff. I have no idea what and, you're talking uh, about. Uh, these sports called rugby and cricket. I'll show you pictures one day. They played mostly <laughs> in the uh, old empire. David, we're going to let David, you go before you cause any ambassador, more trouble. Ambassador, thank you so much ambassador for joining Ambassador Bloom there of HSBC, the thank global head of currency us. strategy. Tom Porcelli joining us now, RBC Capital Markets Chief, U.S. Economist. Tom, as we look ahead to Chairman Powell, what are you looking for? You know, it's, uh, this is the outstanding question uh, at this point, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think he should say. I think he should say that things look really good in the United States. We couldn't be happier with uh, the pace of job growth. Uh, we uh, um, think that the economy does not need cuts right now. Um, this is what we think he should say. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, given what he has been sort of hinting at and what others have been hinting at, uh, I don't know if that is what he is going to say, but um, that's what he's supposed to be saying right now. This economy does not need job cuts. Uh, job cuts, excuse me. This economy does not need uh, uh, Fed funds uh, yeah. easing. Um, this economy needs uh, mm. I mean, a, a, right. a Fed that is going to show support. Um, but at this juncture, we don't, we don't need cuts. What is the price of waiting from July 31 to September 18? I would suggest it's next to nothing. It, it, it is absolutely next to nothing. And, and again, but the, it even begs the question, Tom, it's, you know, well, do we need cuts in September? Right. Well, I don't know. But, you know, we'll see the data. And there's a whole group of people we talked to, Tom, who are looking for a rate cut right now. But the yep. answer is, if you just wait six weeks, aren't we all a lot smarter? Uh, I think that's absolutely true, and, and, and I think that's a completely fair way of, of, of thinking about it. And what I would say is, if you do want to wait six more weeks, I think in six more weeks, you're going to see exactly what you see right now, which is hey, a backdrop that actually looks pretty decent and does not need any cuts at this point. Tom, is there an argument that they've already talked themselves into an interest rate cut and that we have loose financial conditions largely because the Federal Reserve got us here, and now they're in a position where if they don't cut, they're going to face a little bit of a market tantrum? What are your thoughts on that situation? <laughs> 
so I think what the market has to recognize is, well, you know, why is it tantruming? Right? Like, you know, what what is actually going on in the economic backdrop? Uh, you know, it's it's funny. The Fed, the Fed's FRB US, right? This is their the big macro model, right? Furbus. Um, you know, we it, and let me be very clear. We, we don't happen to love that model. Um, it's uh, and and all models suffer from uh, various limitations. Uh, not the least of which is it's not the, the the real world, right? You're you're creating this sort of this perfect environment um, uh, in in a model um, to sort of you know spit out some output. Um, but here, but let's just walk through a. a, a this idea for a second. If if you were to put a 50 basis point cut into the Fed's um, uh, model, um, again, all else yeah. equal, a 50 basis point cut is uh, only worth a couple of tenths to growth. I mean, that, that that's actually what you'd be adding to growth at this point. So again, that sort of naturally begs the question, you know, why are we cutting rates? Cutting rates to get yeah. to what? To get to what add from a growth perspective? They, they have a meeting the 31st Jobs Day is August 2nd, two days later, 48 hours later. Do yeah. they know the numbers when they have their meeting? For which? For Does uh, the Fed for, know does the Fed know at 12 noon on January 30 July 31? Yep. What the job numbers are going to be at 8:30 on August 2nd? No, no, no. Uh, they, come on. I mean, look, uh, I, I, I that, that number comes out um uh, a few days later, most of that report is compiled at that point. Um, so, sure, I mean, you know, I think, Tom, you're, you're raising a, the, the right question. It, it's, oh, well, if they cut, we're going to get a really bad jobs number. I, I completely, I, look, look, again, I hate to be the practical one in the, in the room on this. It's fun to be impractical. But, but, but let's, let's just be clear. The Fed is already looking for much slower job growth than what anyone else is forecasting. Right? Like, if you look at their forecast, they actually had the unemployment rate rising over the course of the next couple of years. What's their non-farm right? payroll equivalent? So, exactly. are, they, are they running so, at 100,000? Yeah, that's exactly my point. So if you actually have an, an increase in the unemployment rate over the coming couple of years, then you necessarily, right, the math, the math behind yeah. that necessarily says that you're looking for below break-even from a job growth perspective. And break-even is, you know, yeah. sort of sub-100,000 right now. So the Fed already has this that. This is great. In. We got through Tom Purcelli without talking about wage growth. Tom Purcelli, thank you so much. RBC Capital Markets. A nice briefing there. Paul Sweeney is out at the Ram. The Ram has been there since 1937, Sun Valley, Idaho. And, you know, it's like a manly breakfast. It's like eight eggs and steak and the whole thing. And a bud. And, and, and a bud. <laughs> yeah, a chaser for <laughs> breakfast as well. And uh, he joins us right now on the Edge of Ketchum uh, in Idaho. Paul Sweeney, why are you in the gorgiosity of Idaho this morning? I am at the Allen & Company conference. Allen & Company is a, uh, a boutique investment bank, really focuses on the media and technology sectors. And they throw this conference every year yeah. uh, in Sun Valley, and it just brings together, Tom and Lisa, some of the, you know, the leading players in media, entertainment, technology, telecommunications, and they all come together here in Sun Valley right. to kind of get a sense of the future trends of their businesses. But really, they come together uh, to talk to each other. And what happens m- many years is a lot of M&A transactions uh, are hatched here okay. in the Valley, and, and those are things we, we read about during the year. What's the level of sweat out there this year? I mean, I know scale is in and all that, but what's the level of sweat you've discerned already? I think it's pretty high out here, despite the low humidity, but uh, 
I think it's pretty high because I think a lot of these uh, media companies that have historically been the, the stalwarts of this conference look around and they say, we're not just in the media business, we're in the global technology business. And, you know, we're looking against, uh, we're competing against Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon. Um, and when you think about it in those terms, a lot of the traditional media companies say we need to either get bigger or we need to get out. And we've seen over the last couple of years, some big, big media companies already decide to kind of get out. Time Warner sold to AT&T. Uh, Rupert Murdoch sold most of his company to uh, the Walt Disney Company. So I think that trend is still very much in play here. Well, one thing that I'm wondering, Paul, uh, first of all, is how you get the gig to go out there because right now I'm looking at the weather and it looks pretty amazing. They're not, there's not much sweat. It's 44 degrees right exactly. now. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, but, Paul, I, I do want to know from you, uh, scale can mean many things, and, and we've seen from some of the big industrial companies, they've been starting to break themselves up at this point because scale has been ineffective. What is the crucial scale to get in media right now? Is it a content game? Is it a... Uh, uh, you know, a, a bandwidth game? What is it? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Number one, I think it's it's a content game. I think if you just think about the uh, the TV business, um, the big disruptor over the last uh, five or six years has been streaming uh, of content. And of course, when you think about streaming, you think about Netflix and, and Bob Iger at the Walt Disney Company, that is his number one focus is Netflix and the ability to have a direct-to-consumer relationship uh, so that you can stream your content directly right. to a consumer with, with, without a middleman like a Comcast or a DirecTV. Uh, and so we've seen the Walt yeah. Disney Company you know, basically double the size of its company by buying Fox just to get more content so that they can create direct-to-consumer uh, relationships, much like Netflix okay. has done, and, and on a global scale. What are we learning about use of debt? If we've had transactions where we've said the debt's up to our eyeballs, we've got to migrate out regional sports networks just to salvage the debt picture. Is this debt affected, or can they actually do it by you know other, other M&A uh, uh, ways? Uh, the media industry um, really, you know, enjoys a debt because these are yeah. big free cash flow businesses. And so the credit markets, whether you're the J.P. Morgan banks or the high yield market, uh, they love to lend to the media and communication sector. So you take a look at AT&T is the biggest borrower outside of the financial sector. Yeah. Um, and, that, yeah. and that's just fine. Comcast is also a big borrower. So these media and telecom yeah. companies, they enjoy the ability to yeah. use their stock also, they can go to the debt markets and really lever up these businesses. Your Bloomberg surveillance this morning with Paul Sweeney in Sun Valley, Idaho. Lisa Bramowitz and Tom Keene. Not there. This part of Bloomberg surveillance brought to you by the Needery. Breakfast in Sun Valley, including, are you ready for this, Lisa? <laughs> Eggs Blackstone. You think Steve Schwartzman? I was about to say. Is, eggs Blackstone. Poached eggs with a grilled seasoned tomato, Thomas's English muffin, top of chopped Come bacon, on. What are you doing? and homemade ho I mean, Schwartzman's, Schwartzman's got his own eggs Benedict out there. Are, are you trying to make me, you're trying to create it's, strife between me and my co-host? We say good morning. <laughs> to, we say good morning <laughs> but, to the needery but, in Sun Valley. I'm glad though, uh, Tom, that you brought up debt because that really is my question. Is there an eagerness to get deals done now? Now, while debt markets are super hot, while there's less demand than there is, uh, when there's less supply uh, than there is demand uh, right now to buy risky uh, assets. I think so. I, absolutely. I think the uh, a lot of the, these, these companies recognize that they're really in a in a fantastic position here, given the debt markets um, and their stocks. Many of their stocks are, are trading at very high valuations. So when you think about some of these acquisitions, whether it's AT and T or Disney making acquisitions. 
Uh, a lot of these companies feel like they're in a very strong position, as do the private equity companies. You know, you, you mentioned you know uh, the folks at Blackstone and KKR. Um, we've seen Apollo out buying uh, TV yeah. assets over the last year, and they're doing uh, all with debt, levering up the. So who's going to advantage? Who's got the you know, big? Oh come on! Who's got the biggest pot of money out there? Is it private equity? Is it Jeff Bezos? I mean, who's stupid rich out at Allen Company right now? I think some of the technology companies, you know, we, we, you know, their stock prices are so high. They're sitting on so much cash. Their borrowing rates are so low. You know, every year we come out here to the Sun Valley Conference, and the question is, when will we see a big technology company, whether it's a Facebook or a Google or an Amazon, really step up and make a, you know, a huge acquisition in the content space to kind of round out their portfolio? We haven't seen it, but that's kind of what the bankers here, I'm sure, are, you know, pitching those deals left and right. All right. So, Paul, uh, please look into your crystal ball. Which mergers or acquisitions should we be expecting to hear about? I think some of the things we'll see probably in the next year, um, you know, kind of what when you're talking to a lot of investment bankers, is they say a lot of the smaller companies like MGM, Lionsgate, even Sony Pictures, uh, all those are content players. Um, You look at Univision. Univision is the largest Spanish language media company in the U.S. They've actually kind of got hired some bankers and are looking for a deal. And maybe even Discovery Communications. They've bought Scripps Networks. They've yeah. gotten very big. But are they big enough? Maybe not. Now, major shout out. In May of this year, Mr. Iger in Disney, the peak is exactly a four standard deviation leap in Disney shares. And they've put it on two months in a row from there. Paul Sweeney out of Allen Company, Sun Valley, uh, Idaho. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.